Following Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo in 1815, Great Britain became the most powerful nation on earth. The world would take its cultural and economic cues from the British over the next century. During this period of dominance, the nature of banking changed within Britain itself, and these changes cascaded to the rest of the world. Our modern banking system is rooted in the reforms of this period. Two centuries ago, British banks stored their customers' golden vaults. Banks would then issue paper certificates of deposit to these customers, which acted as a redemption ticket for their gold. These claim checks became de facto money in the British economy and were preferred by the citizenry because they were lighter and easier to store than gold bullion. The belief that these claim checks could be exchanged for bullion gave them credibility in the wider marketplace. Banks quickly realized that it was unlikely that all depositors would claim their gold all at the same time. Counting on this, they issued more claim checks than could be converted with their gold reserves, and then lent these additional notes to entrepreneurs at interest. This created an increase in the money supply, which eventually drove up prices of British goods. With domestic goods now more expensive, British customers sought to buy relatively cheaper goods from their European neighbors. Continental sellers, unwilling to accept claim checks for gold held at British banks, required physical bullion as payment. This forced consumers to withdraw bullion to pay for European imports, which drained the gold supply at the banks. With reduced gold reserves, the banks could no longer safely issue as many claim checks as they had before, resulting in fewer loans, which in turn contracted the British economy. This boom and bust cycle of credit expansion and contraction would repeat itself many times during this period. In the early 1840s, the economy was again in recession. Credit expansion through banks was recognized as the root cause, and the Bank Charter Act of 1844 was passed to eliminate the problem for good. The act put a ceiling on the number of claim checks the Bank of England could issue against physical gold held in its vaults. Other private banks were restricted even further. Parliament hoped that by limiting artificial expansions, the painful contractions that followed would end as well. Nevertheless, the Act of 1844 proved incomplete. While the legislation restricted the issue of certificates of deposit against gold, it did not limit the issue of demand deposits. This seemingly innocuous oversight actually rendered the Act powerless to rein in credit expansion. A demand deposit is a bank account that can be drawn against without giving prior notice to the bank. The modern equivalent is a checking account. These accounts pay very low rates of interest because the funds are available on demand. Following the Act of 1844, British bankers recognized their opportunity. Instead of issuing extra paper notes when making loans, bankers would simply credit funds to a borrower's demand deposit account and then allow the borrower to draw against that account. This acted as a de facto expansion of the money supply because borrowers could now write checks against a bank credit that was not necessarily backed by gold reserves. In essence, the mechanism of credit expansion had now changed, 
but the effect was identical and therefore the boom and bust cycles continued in Britain even after 1844. This shift towards issuing credits to borrowers through demand deposit accounts is now the foundation of the modern banking system and is commonly known as fractional reserve lending. Banks credit funds to borrowers ex nihilo, which is Latin for out of nothing. They do this through double entry bookkeeping, which creates an equivalent asset, represented by the loan, and liability, represented by the deposit. The only limiting factor to this credit expansion is what banks are required to hold in reserves. This may seem like nothing more than a peculiarity of the banking sector, but it actually has implications for multifamily investors. In our last episode, we discussed the unprecedented rise in excess reserves held at the Fed since the Great Recession. These excess reserves represent substantial inflationary pressure that has not yet entered the real economy. The three rounds of quantitative easing undertaken from 2008 to 2015 quadrupled the monetary base. But as we've seen, due to fractional reserve lending, banks can increase the functional money supply even further. Banks currently hold significant excess reserves because, for the time being, they prefer to earn low but risk-free interest on reserves held at the Fed instead of lending those reserves out to entrepreneurs at higher interest rates but with greater risk. However, if this situation changes and the banks become more aggressive, either by choice or necessity, those excess reserves could enter the lending markets and put upward pressure on the money supply in the real economy. This effect would be inflationary for asset prices because expanding credit would be chasing a relatively fixed number of assets. According to Christopher Phelan, a consultant for the Federal Reserve, quote, Banks in the United States have the potential to increase liquidity suddenly and significantly, from $12 trillion to $36 trillion in currency and easily accessed deposits, and could thereby cause sudden inflation. This is possible because the nation's fractional reserve banking system allows banks to convert excess reserves held at the Federal Reserve to bank loans at about a 10 to 1 ratio. Banks might engage in such a conversion, if they believe other banks are about to do so, in a manner similar to a bank run that generates a self-fulfilling prophecy. End quote. It is very difficult to predict the timing, severity, and relative impacts of inflationary and deflationary events. Nevertheless, we live in a time where there are major inflationary pressures built up within the banking sector. These pressures are actually a benefit to investors who own real assets because they represent the potential for nominal appreciation along with the erosion of real debt service costs. These effects, if they come to pass, will benefit multifamily owners substantially, both in terms of balance sheet growth and in terms of net cash flow. Investors who own real assets before these forces accelerate will have an advantage. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Multifamily Economics. If you did, please leave us a review on iTunes, which will increase our visibility and help us grow. If you would like to discuss multifamily investing with me personally, 
please go to the contact us page on our website, darbyrosecapital.com. Thank you.